Hello and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willey, and our guest today is Scott Wilson, who has worked in academia and has collaborated on projects across the Asia-Pacific and Europe, and has also provided advice for government, industry, education providers, NGOs, and community groups. He's currently the Chief Scientist at Earthwatch and the Research Director of the Australasian Microplastic Assessment Project. Hi and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. Hosted by Chanel Gleason Wiley and her team of earth advocates at Moss Environmental, we crack down on the big topics like sustainability and conservation and break them into bite sized chunks of inspiration and actionable steps that you can use to unleash the eco-warrior inside you. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real-life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hi, Scott. It is lovely to have you on the show today. Hi, Chanel. Thanks for having me. So you recently started a new role uh, with Earthwatch. It was actually the beginning of this year after uh, over 20 years as a researcher and um, an academic at several different universities. How's the new role going? It's great, actually. It's a a change from academia. So at Earthwatch, uh, I've taken over as the chief scientist there leading the programs and providing direction in terms of, you know, the ways forward and, and emerging issues, I suppose, that Earthwatch should be. So it's been a good change after being in academia for, as you said, the last 20-odd years, but still got connections back to uh, my research roots at uh, the different institutions. Yeah, right. So what was the reason for the change? I suppose where I'm at in my career, I wanted to have greater impact. And while I was you know, in a university, you, you do your individual research and, and obviously engaging with students as well is, is great. I suppose the programs that Earthwatch offer, because Earthwatch is a, an international organisation, um, there's scope for just broader impact and engagement, uh, not only in Australia, but you know, globally. So I suppose that's what drove me. And, you know, a change, as they say, is as good as a holiday. Yeah, definitely. And what's, um, what projects are you currently working on? Because I guess that's something that a lot of us in the industry do seek out throughout our career is to have that mm. real impact that we can see. And you mentioned that you've still got ties back to the universities. So are there great projects that you're working on collaboratively with them? Uh, yes. So I'm working on a range of projects. Uh, at Earthwatch, we have some really nice programs. There's a, a Climate Watch program. So once again, a lot of it's community-based. And so the Climate Watch program is, is looking at those, documenting those seasonal changes that happen, you know, say the flowering of plants or the appearance of certain animals at different times of the years and, and recording that and getting community to, to note those changes and how our changing climate patterns you know altering those so that's one particular one 
Uh, the other one I'll, I'll just highlight is uh, at Earthwatch, we're developing a tiny forest program. And this is uh, a regreening or a rewilding of our urban spaces at the moment. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a, a dense planting of vegetation, uh, endemic vegetation that's endemic to the area. It's kind of a tennis court size area, but it's using a, an approach by a Japanese botanist called the Miyawaki method. So it's this dense planting that actually promotes faster growth, 10 times faster growth than you would as a normal planting procedure. But there's also obviously flow on effects in terms of the cooling that a forest might provide, the habitat and obviously just you know the aesthetics and, and the mindfulness that a green space can provide in an urban setting. Yeah, so is this for, as you said, you're looking at, the, I guess, the future use of it as um, in an urban setting and rolling that out to a wider sort of area, mm. or are you also looking at potentially doing it on a, a larger scale in terms of square metres or even up to square kilometres to try and re- you know, re-green, re-vegetate? No, it's it's specifically small patches. Uh, maybe there will be a, a network of those rather than large hectares of uh, land that's covered. Uh, there's other groups kind of doing that those kind of large areas. We're specifically targeting urban areas because, as you, you know, there's a lot of veg has been removed from those types of uh, areas, and so. It becomes a place for people to use, to go to. It becomes an education space as well. So part of what we're doing is engaging with the local community. So there's champions, if you like, that will help monitor. And, and so we're recording you know, some of those factors like you know, the biodiversity that might use those, those new patches, the temperature changes that you know, having some green space can provide. So we'll be documenting, monitoring over time. The changes, the UK office has been doing a lot of work in this space, so we're kind of rolling that out and hope to have our first forest up and running later in the year. Yeah, um, so, yeah, keep an eye out on that. But yeah, no, what, uh, what sort of density are we talking about compared to, I guess, what you were comparing it to? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're looking at, between three to five plants per square metre, which is something like 30 times the, the normal density that you get. But this this approach is very much showing rapid growth so that because of the dense planting and obviously you're providing the water and the nutrition for those plants, what you find is 10 times faster growth. Uh, then you get a, a forest, if you like, popping up quicker than you would if you just went for the, the normal type of spacing. Yeah, and is it is it really restrictive on then the types of species that you can use? Yes. So, I mean, there's a few tiny or mini forests like this being planted in Australia at the moment, but it's really new to our landscape and the applications of our native species. So we'd use endemic species to the region, but we're almost creating you know, the climax type community that are planting where you've got a canopy, uh, mid-storey, uh, understory and ground cover species within the forest, but you're planting them all at once, so to speak, and, and getting almost getting past that initial 30-year development phase that you would get with a normal forest and, and trying to accelerate that. So 
it's it's part research as well to understand you know how well that will apply to our settings here in Australia. So yes, yeah, so we have to choose local species that will work. So there'll be some tree species, some shrub, ground cover species that locally endemic, as I said, but also would work in that setting. Yeah, and you've got a, a lot of experience in the area of anthropogenic impacts mm. um, on ecosystems. So I guess it, it ties into that. But some of that 25 years of experience is how the anthropogenic impacts to ecosystems can affect human health. In particular, um, we're looking at microplastics and seeing uh, you, you're the research director at the Australasian Microplastics Assessment yes. Project. I guess, can you tell us why you've chosen more to focus on microplastics or is there any other anthropogenic impacts you've previously worked on? Yes, so I should say that my background is as an ecotoxicologist uh, by training. So I grew up, if you like, (laughs) uh, with uh, understanding, trying to understand the impacts that chemicals and pollutants have in our environment. So I've worked on a range of contaminants over the years, you know, from heavy metals to pesticides, and one of the projects I'm still working on at the moment, actually, with uh, colleagues at Macquarie University and the University of New South Wales, is on PFAS, these perfluorinated compounds, and looking at ways to remove them from waters and, and soils. So I suppose the plastics is just another type of contaminant that is yeah, come to the fore that I'm sure everyone is well aware of the issues of now, but I've been working in the plastics space for 15 plus years and back then there was, you know, there was a little bit known but not a lot. So uh, what we started a few years ago is the OSMAP program, the Australian Microplastic Assessment Project, to try and understand the levels of microplastic pollution around uh, Australia. Mm. Uh, And so that's a run through a not-for-profit organisation called the Total Environment Centre with university partners on board as well to support that. But we're really engaging local communities to help us gather the data. So we run training days, they they go out uh, and collect the data uh, once we show them the techniques and they get a kit to do the sampling. Um, It's very hands-on and so uh, unlike other kind of uh, citizen science programs where it's, you know, you take a sample and send it off and then the scientists will go and analyse it, we actually get the community to do a lot of the analysis and, and we kind of just finish it off at the end. And um, how does that um, engagement, uh, how's it been going? Like have you been seeing a lot of interest from the community? Yes, and I think it's been growing, you know, as as the awareness of the issues of single-use plastics and and just the impacts that plastics entering our environment have. So definitely we've probably engaged over 400 communities uh, around the country now, and so we've got data points from all those areas, and so people can go to our site, osmap.org, And there's a map there with data that's being uploaded all the time, updated all the time. Once we get the samples back from the community and we verify them, it gets uploaded. And so 
we're seeing quite good engagements uh, and and also some positive changes based on on that data that's being collected. So we work with stakeholders as well to get some changes happening. Once we identify that the plastic is an issue in this area, then we work with local governments, other stakeholders to try and get positive changes happening. Is that mostly behavioural changes or are there, um, is there infrastructure builds or what, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a range of things. I mean, behaviour change is, is definitely an important one in that because most of the issues are coming from us. Obviously, the, the litter and, and the plastics in the environment is purely coming from our activities. Yeah, yeah. So changing how people understand, firstly understand the issues and, and, and then how to best go about you know, stopping them or reducing them is part of our program. So we have a whole kind of education package and we work with school groups as well, teachers and schools and have curriculum material. So it's kind of embedded through hopefully all the wider community. But it's also working with, when I said stakeholders, so it could be, you know, if we find in an area that there's an industry that might be releasing a lot of plastics, they might not know they're doing it or aware of their, you know, doing it so it's about um, education about what they're doing behaviors and correct yes so it's educating them which then leads to changes in their practices where they might put a a boom in place to stop it going down the stormwater or cleaning up after a process so it's there's some infrastructural changes so some councils are put in uh, litter baskets and like fine mesh litter baskets and things like that that stop it mm-hmm. uh, getting into our waterways but you know as you, you suggested it's education and behavior changes is the best way to stop it at the source. So if I was a community member and I signed up to a day what would I be doing what what does it look like? Yeah so we run well we run a training day so if people want to be active in their local area we can run training days and so that's a full day program where we go through you know the theory and the background to the issues and then get them out in the field so it's practical and show them uh, a site so it might be the local beach or a shoreline so we work on any waterway that as long as it has soft sediment there because it involves sieving so it could be a river so inland waterways it's not just ocean plastics are an issue inland Wherever we got uh, our urban in footprint or even just our activities, yeah, you can have plastics entering the waterway. So we've done lakes, we've done rivers, estuaries and, and coasts. So we do the practical uh, session out in their local area, uh, demonstrate the techniques, then we bring them back to a spot and then we do the analysis, what microplastic is, how to identify it, and then how to record it and send the data on to us so all that's part of the day and then once they're trained they go off and, and if they've got some kit then they can go out and do the sampling in over time uh, it's always good to get some temporal data to see changes over seasons or, or different activity patterns within you know the local area mm. and with the the actual analysis is it um is it a physical or a chemical analysis like how do you actually quantify or count yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good, good question. So microplastic is anything less than five millimetres in size down to 0.001 of a millimetre. And so 
it's quite small. So obviously very difficult to find those, those really fine fractions. But uh, our program is really just looking at the larger size classes as a snapshot for what's there. So we just look at, with our OSMAP program, the one to five millimetre range, yeah, the very easily visible range of the, of the microplastics. And so, as I said, we sieve it, we float it, they pick what they think are plastics out and record, you know, number the type so is it a foam or a fiber or a hard fragment or a pellet things like that soft plastic you know those types of things what color it is and the size so all this is recorded and they do a site assessment as well each time they go out and record the conditions on the day and what's happened the last few days prior to going out so that's all captured by the group and and they um yeah, send that through and then we verify through our techniques. And then we often do samples ourselves or ask the community to take a sediment sample and send it to us as well. And then we do that finer fraction analysis, uh, which you need kind of uh, instruments. So there's spectrophotometers that tell us whether this fine little bit of item, which you think feels like plastic, looks like plastic, but isn't really plastic. So you need those instruments to to actually you know determine those smaller those smaller bits. And About two months ago now, I guess this is this links back to those smaller fractions. You put up a post on LinkedIn uh, about how microplastics were found deep in the lungs of living people. Mm. Can you tell us what that means for us? And does it matter where we live, whether that's city or regional, or what we do with our lives? Uh, yes, good, all good questions. Yes, unfortunately, there's there's been more and more evidence of late for humans you know, or for microplastics being found in humans. So there was that study that you referred to where there was microplastics found in the deep parts of our lungs. It was originally thought that if any particles we might breathe in would only be in the upper layers and we might cough it back out. But this study showed that it was in the deep tissues, so it's getting in there. There's been also some recent studies of it being found in, in human blood now as well. So there's, there's definitely cause for concern that's in our body. I can probably guarantee that everyone listening has probably got microplastics in their body. It's just all pervasive in our, in our society. And I've got a student who's uh, just finishing up her PhD at Macquarie University. And she's been looking at microplastics in the homes, both within Australia and globally. And there's microplastics just in, in the air, in floating around in the dust particles um, because of what we use in our homes or what we're wearing today. You know, so a lot of the materials are synthetic or synthetic blend type products, the clothing, the carpets are synthetic a lot a lot of the times, the furnishings are synthetic. So these all shed particles and because they're very fine, they just get into the air and we just breathe them in. So uh, her study found that uh, homes that, it probably makes sense, that homes that have carpet uh, have more microplastic than non-carpeted homes so if you've got timber or tiles on your your floors then you're going to have less exposure to microplastics 
the other interesting thing is because she surveyed people about their activities and how many people uh, in the home, the number of people didn't matter to the, to the loads found, which was interesting, but the amount of vacuuming or cleaning you do does, and once again, probably makes sense. But if you vacuum your house, and here's a little tip, vacuum your house weekly, you'll have less microplastic exposure than if you do less than weekly. So I had to change my practices there a bit because I'm kind of a, a fortnightly type vacuumer at my place, but um, I've gone to a more weekly one just to reduce <laughs> the amount of microplastics floating in the air. So, um, But, yeah, it'll be in all homes. And so the global study found that you know some kind of lower socioeconomic uh, countries Developing countries uh, had higher microplastics than, say, countries like Australia, but uh, all houses had some form. So whether you're in the regions uh, or in a city, it's what you have in your home is is the issue. So it's not coming from the outside in; it's from the in. Oh, it's the the furniture and the clothing, as you said, and yeah, yeah. there may be a little bit from from the outside coming in and there's been studies done on, on microplastics floating in the upper atmosphere and there was actually a study just uh, released a couple of days ago that found microplastics in Antarctic snow and so that's all you know, being deposited through through the atmospheric transfer of, of microplastics. Yeah, okay. You've made me uh, feel a bit more confident about the level of microplastics in my home because uh, I actually have one of those robot vacuum cleaners that vacuums Perfect. every day. So, <laughs> so I'm going, yes. We, did, so, we didn't yeah. look at that, but that's an interesting point. That's, uh, yeah, I imagine, yeah, the more frequently yeah, it's clean then. As long as its suction is um, strong enough, I guess, to actually get those the finer particles. Uh, it, it should be, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was doing a bit of research and found out that about 5.25 trillion micro and micro pieces of plastic are in the ocean and are estimated to be um, more than the number of fish in the oceans by 2050 mm-hmm. if plastic production continues. Now, you've been doing a couple of microplastic assessments in the beaches around Sydney. And what trends have you noticed? Um, so are the numbers increasing, decreasing? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so unfortunately, there is a lot of plastics out in our oceans, and that's a uh, ongoing issue. Because if you look at the production, the global plastic production rate is just ramping up. It's just continuing to increase, and uh, almost exponentially to twenty fifty is the you know the rates. And as oil companies move away from oil. Or petroleum, they're putting it into plastics. So they're still producing it, but not for, as a, a fuel source, but also because most products. Yeah, that's right. So they see that as an alternative. So they're pushing that heavy, hard. And so unfortunately, yeah, the, the, the rate of plastic production continues to increase. But we, we, we're seeing trends. And there was a study by CSIRO that actually also just came out recently and they've shown a decrease in some of the plastics around Australian shores the larger stuff the bottles and the bags and things like that and that's tied directly to like the container deposit the return and earn scheme or the equivalents in other states and you know the supermarkets removing plastic bags from 
from the shelves. So, so there's been positives there. What we're seeing with our data over the years, so we've been going since 2018, the OzMap program. In Sydney, that is our largest kind of data set, and we've got data, uh, almost monthly data at some locations um, from Sydney Harbour, for example, and uh, we're not seeing much difference in the micro because, as you're well aware, you know, one item breaking up can be creating thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of pieces because plastic, you know, unfortunately doesn't go away. It just continues to break up into into the micro and, and even nanoplastics. There's evidence of that now. So it doesn't really go away. So, so that persistence in the environment, I guess it would take an awfully long time for us to see any real change in those micro and, and nanoplastics unless we as a I guess society were to develop some sort of a technology to actually physically pull that out. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. I think, I mean, the, unfortunately, once it's in the micro, you know, phase, it's it's going to be very difficult to remove, and that will hang around for hundreds of years, thousands of years potentially. So we need to stop it. And, and the measures that we've got in place are now around the country. So we have a national plastics plan and various states have implemented bans on single-use plastics that are coming in force at different places. So these are great measures because it stops the big stuff being used and obviously stops the small stuff. But there's still lots of sources, unfortunately. You know, it's not just those items. So we're doing some work around... Uh, synthetic sports fields now because you know most of those obviously have plastic grass blades and then the artificial soil they use is rubber crumb most of the rubber is synthetic these days so it's a plastic and so these uh, we're finding these washing off and ending up on our shorelines um, as well so as councils have moved to try and improve playtimes for sports clubs on these fields they've replaced the grass with these synthetic fields and but there's these side effects uh to those and so particularly in sydney where we've seen an increase in synthetic grass and and rubber crumb on our shores because of that in in the last uh, council elections that were held in new south wales and particularly in the sydney ones a lot of the the local elections were, were based or part of it was based on you know, the fields, there is a lot of opposition to, to these synthetic fields now because there's also health effects and heat effects associated with, with these fields. So some councils uh, have stopped ones that they're going to put in and others are thinking about removing them. So these are all positive changes, but it's a slow process. So we're not going to get rid of microplastics, unfortunately, anytime soon, but we're on a way to, to slowing it down and as you said, Chanel, it's, it's about thinking about our products. Better products is, is maybe the best way forward. And, you know, there's bioplastics. You know, you're, 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 anyone who's got a, a dog, you know, have the dog poo bags. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those are bioplastics. So they're organic-based and are designed to break down. They're designed to break down. In, in compost. So they're really, if you littered one of these bioplastic bags, 
in the ocean, say, it's not going to break down. It will break down eventually, of course, but the the speed is not as rapid as you would. So they're designed for being composted, not uh, just breaking down in ambient temperatures. Yeah, and I guess this substitutions um, of different plastic, uh, synthetic plastics being used as turf is, I guess, is, is a bit of a, a difficult question, isn't it? Because the reason out here anyway that a lot of those synthetics were put down recently was because of the drought. Mm. Um, so it was solving one issue or one problem but, you know, potentially creating an environmental one more long-term. And it, I guess it is looking at a substitute that's more an you know, environmentally friendly option than what we're currently using, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I've spoken to the natural turf guys that are saying that it's it's about you can have a natural grass field that is – maybe doesn't have the exact playing times that are so part of it's overuse so you can only play on a field and it starts to degrade and the grass gets kicked up and whatever but if you design it right and have the right soil so it's a lot of it's about the right soil condition then you can get close to a synthetic field in in terms of the playing times on it obviously the water's you know an important issue to that and Mm. in drought that makes it difficult to do but it becomes more resilient field so it can withstand drying a bit more because the soil you know the amendments to the soil are, are basically creating a healthier environment for the grass to grow in yeah a lot of our conversations you know vast array of different environmental topics always come back to soil and just how important it is oh, definitely. Um, yeah <laughs> Um, so one of our previous guests was Ian Brookman. He was on this podcast a few weeks ago and he mentioned that microplastics are very challenging, as we've just spoken about, and hard to eradicate in the environment. Can you tell us what your views are about this? Is there some strategy in place to address this problem by the government? So we've spoken about, uh, I guess, stopping it at the source, substitution or just eradication. But at the the higher levels, is is the government taking notice of this? Yes, uh, is a a simple answer to that. Um, So as I mentioned, there is a a national plastics plan. So it's looking at the whole plastics chain, right? So from production through to the end of life. And that's important when, when we're talking about a plastic pollution issue we can't just isolate it as you know the product you use a product and, and dispose of it um in improperly or blows off out of the bin so we need to think about the whole life cycle of the product and and the the national plastics plan and and the various states are now uh working on solutions so there there is changes going on and and working with the the resource recovery companies and businesses and the whole waste management issue is part of that and having part of the issue stem from we used to ship all our plastics off to China or a lot of it off to China and let them deal with it obviously that got cut off um, when China introduced their ban so we've had to develop things quickly in you know the local market and so that's the government's realize that and, and put some money towards that so having the infrastructure in place is is definitely important step in that and so they've been working on that um, so policies and government funding is is being forthcoming has it been 
maybe enough, you could argue, maybe never enough competing interests, obviously. Could they be doing more? Sure. But then things rear rear their head, you know, like we just talked about with the synthetic grass, you know, that's really only a a recent issue, but uh, there's been a, the chief scientist office in New South Wales is, is been investigating it because of, you know, these issues specifically with the synthetic grass fields, because it's been raised as an issue, then the chief scientist office is now investigating it. So it comes back to either the scientists or I think more importantly, the community, you're raising it as an issue. And then it's kind of the bottom up approach to, to drive change. So and and that also you know involves uh, the industries as well. So there's a thing called the Australian Packaging Covenant, and so this is the industries agreeing to. So a lot of our plastic issues are packaging issues, right? And yeah, yeah. so the the industries collectively are trying to reduce that. And now you see, you know, when you you get a package, it'll have a you know this component can be recycled, or this part you know. Uh, can't or has to go, you know, waste and tells you where, what you can do with the different parts. So this is all labelling that's been added because of, you know, the growing awareness of of the plastic waste issue that we have. So I think it's happening, to get back to your question, but it's a multi-pronged thing. So I think we still need to be cognisant and as, as a community generally we need to be the watchdogs uh, for the for the government at all levels, really, so that, you know, to make sure they are doing the right things and being proactive and, and keep on them. They tend to be reactive rather than proactive. But in terms of the science element, there's has been increased funding in that space. CSIRO, AIMS and different university groups have been doing research in this and the impacts of that. But there's, there's still a lot we don't know, particularly the impacts. Uh, element so we probably have a handle on and and programs like osmap help in understanding how much is out there so we we have a good handle of what's out there the it's kind of the so what question uh is is still to be known and as i talked about yeah we've got evidence of plastics in our bodies we've got evidence of plastics in marine life freshwater life terrestrial organisms as well so the the next question we're still grappling is what is that going to have on us or in in the the impacts that's right so that's where i think more uh, information is required and, and more funding is required at the moment yeah, we're, as um, environmental scientists, we're really watching this space closely because it's we see it as you know an emerging contaminant, and really around that the uh, impacts to human health uh, of of great concern, but also to um, the environmental health as well. So, what what are we looking at in terms of impacts to fish, and what what is that going to look like in the future? So. Mm. I guess we're possibly looking at microplastics and nanoplastics as where PFAS was maybe, you know, 10 years ago, I guess, um, where we didn't really know much about it, but we had this inkling that oh, maybe it's not so great um, and we need more, more research into it. Correct. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that it's a good analogy. There's been evidence 
over the years of impacts to marine life. And obviously we've all probably all seen images of, you know, turtles entangled and, and seabirds full of plastics in their stomach. Uh, but it's those subtle, and this is where I think the, uh, the issues of the microplastics and the nanoplastics is because once it's so small, it can get into, you know, everything from, from plankton through to whales if we want to go through the full, you know, size range or, or even microbial. You know, there's, there's a whole range of potential impacts and there are scientists doing work on that all over the world, but it's not um, in Australia. The pool of people doing work in that area is small and the funding's probably even smaller. So for locally, as you know, you know our, our wildlife is very uh, much you know, endemic to our region. And so how our species respond can be different to how other species respond elsewhere. So, yeah, I agree. Um, that's a, a growing area. And I'll just add that in terms of the impacts, it's possibly the chemicals associated with the plastics that may be the bigger issue. So mm. plastics or the polymers are generally benign but because a plastic product is made and they add chemicals to it to give it its strength or its flexibility these binders as well yep yeah and colorants you know all these are chemicals that when an animal ingests that bit of microplastic it's also potentially you know getting a dose of chemicals that came with that plastic when it was made so and that's you know just you remind me with the PFAS, we, we found, so with our OSMAP program, we also look at the chemicals uh, in our labs that are found on the plastics to try and understand the, the potential risks in an area. And we're finding PFAS uh, chemicals on, on the plastics as well because, unfortunately, when they're floating around in the water, they're also absorbing not only well, they don't. They have the chemicals they came with that mm. when they were manufactured, but they actually absorbing all the the other chemicals out of the waters as well because they act like sponges. Uh, they're really good at sucking up contaminants out of the water. And uh, as a side note, I know some uh, aquaculture farms actually put uh, these plastic balls, like golf ball size balls, into their ponds post farming to remove all the nutrients, to suck up all the nutrients, and then they pull them out again and all the, the nutrients are attached to the plastics. It's just yeah. a nice way to filter <laughs> filter the water, a cheap way for them. I don't know what they do with the balls. They probably just throw them away. But, but yeah, so plastics in the environment are doing something like that in that they're absorbing. So if there's heavy metals, PFAS, you know, other contaminants in the waterways, you'll find it on, on a floating bit of plastic as well, mm. guaranteed. So a problem, but also a solution. <laughs> True. So <laughs> if we can control the collection process, uh, then, yeah, maybe it's it's one, but I wouldn't be deliberately adding to our open environment. If it was an enclosed environment, definitely we could uh, be doing something like that. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Scott. It's been really great to talk to you. And um, I loved hearing about the um, OSMAP program and everything that you're doing at Earthwatch and with the microplastics program. So that wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Chanel Gleason-Willie, your host, and 
Look out for our program next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.